This morning we have read many lessons of scripture tracing the story of the Bible beginning in the early days of our rebellion, our fatal turn against God, but then immediately following that, God's promise to do something about the predicament in which we find ourselves today. Words of promise that he would come and crush the head of the serpent who had led us into deceit. Words of promise that that one who would come as a deliverer was to be a son, a royal son of David, and that in the coming of his kingdom and in his reign that the creation itself would be transformed, that sins would be forgiven, that all would be right and every manner of things would be right. The promises are not docile and they're not just sweet. They're powerful, enormous. And as we come to these words this morning and we gather it all together, we're going to reflect on one verse of scripture from John chapter 8, verse 12. And so listen carefully to what our Lord Jesus says. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we come confessing that our Lord Jesus is the light of the world, that in him is the light of life and in him is abundant life. And God, yet we know that we are in darkness that we have called darkness light and that we have called light darkness. And it's only in you, in the light of your truth that you draw us out. And so teach us these things today. May your word be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We confess that it's only in your light that we see light. Send out your light and truth today. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Today, Sean Cole is a successful producer working with Chicago Public Radio, but it's not always been that way for Sean. He was a nerdy teenager growing up in a small town in Massachusetts, and he was rather troubled. The jocks and the bullies were rather harsh on him, and he suffered the injustices of those who suffer under jocks and bullies. And so he filled his time with other things, and he particularly filled his time with watching public television, particularly British public television. He got really into it. I'm talking about Masterpiece Theater and all the shows that come with it. Sean found himself attaching to particular characters presented in British public television. And he found that he loved the sense of aloofness and condescension and superiority that came in these British characters. He stayed up late at night, consuming hour after hour after hour of all that condescension. He liked it so much that he began to speak with a British accent. He used British vocabulary, the Queen's English, and he used British sayings, calling things the boot instead of the trunk. A psychologist asked him, why? Why are you doing this? It took him some years to actually come to the answer. But it was in all those feelings of inferiority as a teenager that he suffered from. 
that that British sense of character, that aloofness and that condescension allowed him to feel superior to everyone around him. And so for two full years of his life, if you can imagine this, from age 14 to age 16, from morning until night, whether with friends or with family, teachers, no matter where he was, he spoke with a British accent all day. He convinced himself. Actually, one scene that he explains is that he leaned out of his upstairs window and yelled, I am British. No one could tell him otherwise. They weren't going to. And what's all fascinating, because he was not remotely British. He'd grown up in the United States. He lived there in Massachusetts. But Sean had believed his own lie, a fiction that he had told himself. He was living out a hoax. The truth was something very different, actually. But the lie sustained him. It allowed him to function in a way that he wanted to, a way of being that he wanted in the world. And of course, this type of thing happens to individuals. Perhaps you've seen it. We also know it happens to groups of people, individuals collected together who begin to believe something and participate in a movement on false premises. And we tend to step back and we tend to scoff believing that something like that, believing something on false premises and basing our lives on that, that that would never happen to us. But the Bible makes one really daring assertion, something that's really profoundly uncomfortable for me, something that's really profoundly uncomfortable for you as well. Paul explains in Romans 1, that we have all taken this plunge, that we have all exchanged the truth and we've exchanged that truth for a lie, that we have all called light darkness and that we have all called darkness light, that there is no exception in the room, there's no exception in human history, that we have loved darkness rather than light. John explains in chapter 3, verse 19, that we've embraced the lie and we've not embraced the truth. And the lie reaches back to that primal moment that we read of in Genesis 3, that moment when human beings ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was no innocent error. It was a moment in which they simply got their dietary needs backwards. But rather, we understand that that moment in human history was a bold moment of sedition, a rebellion in which human beings announced that they wanted to be like God, that they wanted to be the judge of good and evil. They wanted to be the arbiter of right and wrong. They wanted to be the master of the world around them. And so we all, in that fateful decision, struck out on our own. We struck out on our own way to be independent and autonomous, and this is what the Bible calls embracing the lie, that we can actually find an abundant and fulfilling life, independent and away from God. And that's the lie that we've all believed. It's the fiction that we've all participated in, that we've all drunk from it deeply. 
And this is how God describes your predicament. It's how he describes mine, that we've embraced the lie, a massive hoax, and that we stubbornly refuse to acknowledge that situation, that we're just slow to do so. So the question today out of all of this great story is what does God do with that moment? What does he do with us in exchanging light and darkness, truth and the lie? And the answer is found in all of the promises that we read today. But it can be easily summarized by what Jesus says in John 8. I am the light of the world. And this is what God does. He sends light into the world. That's what he does in all of our light and all of our darkness and all of our deceit. He sends light into the world for us. The claim is bold by Jesus as all of the I am statements that we've seen over the past weeks. It's built on a simple metaphor, but yet a metaphor layered with loads of scripture behind it. And it reveals who Jesus is and it reveals what Jesus comes to do. And so what exactly is it in brief this morning that we learn from Jesus when he says to us today, I am the light of the world. Three things that we'll look at. First, the light, who's Jesus, exposes the darkness. In scripture, if you were just to look across a broad swath of passages, you would note that light is always associated with truth. It's opposed to falsehood. It's God's counter to the lie. That the light and the truth of God counters the lie that we've all bought and that we've all participated in. And in John's gospel, that light confronts people of all sorts and of all kinds in every condition that you could imagine in human life. In chapter 4, we find Jesus confronting a Samaritan woman who was a woman who was lost in patterns of cyclical sin. Her life was a wreck. And Jesus, the light of the world, exposes all of that darkness. And this is perhaps the type of confrontation that we're comfortable with. But in chapter 8, where we just read from, where Jesus proclaims himself the light of the world, we find a different type of confrontation, where Jesus is confronting the religious authorities. These were the Pharisees, the people who kept Israel on the path of reform and renewal. They were the people who cherished the scriptures. They believed that they were serving God. And yet in verse 44 of that chapter, Jesus says that they didn't stand in the truth, that they didn't see, that they didn't believe, that they were blind. Yes, they were interested in religion, they were interested in the things of God, but yet they were still participating in that primal sin. You see, they wanted God and they wanted religion. They wanted all of it, but they wanted it on their own terms. And so it was still an independent and autonomous relationship to God. And this is what the light does, and it's what we can expect when God shows up, when Jesus is working in our midst, is that he exposes the lie. He exposes our autonomy and he exposes our, in our independence, the ways that we want to be free from him and the ways we want to define ourselves outside of him. He exposes all of that wherever it 
appears in all of its forms. This is what the light of Jesus does. Second, we also see that this light brings deliverance. As you look at scripture and several of the ones that we've even read this morning, Isaiah 9 and verse 2. If you were to look into Isaiah 42 and verse 6 or Isaiah 49 verse 6, you would see the mention of light and of a coming one who would bring that light. Psalm 27 perhaps captures it most succinctly. The Lord is my light and my salvation. That a light would dawn in Israel and it would bring light and illumination to all the ends of the earth. That there would be salvation and deliverance. And what's really critical for us is to understand how that light brings deliverance. Because you see, that light doesn't come. It doesn't come to give us spiritual techniques that make us wise and allow us to center ourselves. That's not the light that delivers us in Scripture. And the light doesn't come to give you a set of moral rules by which you can clean yourself up for God. That's not the light that delivers you in the Bible. The light doesn't deliver us by simply giving us encouragement and aspiration in the midst of life's hardships, as if a Hallmark card. This is not the way that the light brings deliverance and redemption and salvation in the Bible. But rather, the light comes into the world and actually is extinguished by the darkness. That is that Jesus lays down his life. That the light of life gives himself in your place and in my place. Because you see the lie, the darkness that we had embraced created an alienation. There was a separation, a cleavage in our relationship with God in which we had said, no, thank you. And that God has to address that problem in order to be reconciled with us because there was nothing that we can do. And so the light of the world, Jesus, steps in to do what only God then could do for us, to fix a problem that we could never fix, that our no thank you, our embracing of the lie had created that gap and that gulf. And so the darkness that we had participated in had to be absorbed. It had to be defeated. It had to be overcome. And this is what Jesus does as he goes to the cross after living a righteous and a humble life, fully obeying God. He gives himself in our place to do what we cannot do for ourselves, that we could be freed from the lie. Augustine, in his commentary on this passage, he says, just as nobody and nothing gets being from itself, in other words, just as you don't create yourself, so nobody and nothing gets salvation from itself. You have no power to bring yourself into the world. And you know you have no power to reconcile yourself with God. And when Jesus says that he is light, this is what he means. That in him alone is salvation. That he alone can handle the darkness. That he alone can satisfy the debt we've incurred because of the lie we've participated in that he alone frees us by his truth, which is his death on the cross. Finally, as we look at this theme of light, we also see that light issues hope. 
One of the strongest passages in scripture of this idea of light is found in Exodus 13. And it's there that Israel is on the way up out of Egypt. And God leads that company of people, that nation, in what is described to us as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so that they would have light and be able to journey. Its light brought them through the wilderness. It continued to accompany them. It was a pledge of God's goodwill to his people. It was a pledge of hope that God would fulfill his promises, that God was with his people. And when Jesus says he is the light of the world, this is the proclamation that he is God with us, that he will not leave us, that he will not forsake us, that he doesn't give us promises and lead us out into the wilderness and just drop us off. No matter what those days and hours may look like in the wilderness and wherever you are in your journey with him right now, wherever your particular situation of life locates you, this is the promise of God to you, that in Jesus I am the light of the world and that he is present and that presence assures us that God hasn't forsaken us. We know that's ours because of what he's done on our behalf. And so it is the light, Jesus, that issues us hope. And friends, the light continues to shine. It shines in the darkness. And we're told in the opening words of the Gospel of John that the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness did its best, but the light of life could not be held. And Jesus rises from the grave, and he does so in order that we might have hope that darkness doesn't win, that light overcomes. Because, friends, we've all participated in the lie. It's hard to admit we don't want to, but it's that stubborn refusal that holds us in it. And yet, the light has come. It's come as truth, it's come as salvation, it's come as hope. And this is what Jesus comes to do, is to free us from all of that. That we be reunited with God and that we participate in this awesome plan of his redemption of the world. That's what he invites us to today. That's what we hear in beautiful carols and songs, sung for hundreds of years, many of these but we're being invited to something far more profound than beautiful music. It's God's redemption of the world, light overcoming darkness. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your light, the light that you sent into the world and in sending our Lord Jesus into the world, you revealed yourself to us. And we see also what you've done on our behalf that you've exposed all darkness and that you've brought deliverance and that you give us hope in your presence with us. Teach us, God, that you never leave us or forsake us and that light has overcome darkness and light will overcome all of our darkness. Set our hearts upon these hopes. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.